I'm overwhelmed with the presence of God today. <laughs> it's, not that, it's not that God hasn't been with us this week. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, I am with you always, that God is always with us. But coming together in worship, it makes us aware of God's presence. Do you understand that? It's not as if we come here and God shows up. God has been with us all throughout the week, but there's something about being together with you. It's something about being together with the, the church body, our brothers and sisters from the Spanish-speaking congregation and the English-speaking congregation, all gathered together here in the same place, singing the songs of God, reading the, the story of God. And it's in that moment that we become aware of God's presence that is with us. And, and so I'm, I'm just kind of experiencing a moment where I'm just overwhelmed by that and deeply thankful, <laughs> deeply thankful for what God is doing among us. If you have uh, your Bibles, we'll be in uh, John chapter 21. And we're going to read the story of, of Peter encountering Jesus after the resurrection. And this is a, a kind of a transitional day for us because we're finishing up a series called Discovering Your Story. And then next week we're going to launch a series called Different. And it's based on the epistles of First and Second Peter. And, and so I want us to tell the story of Peter. And, and somehow the, the story of Peter fits into our story. Very much so. We, we identify with Peter very well, and, and we'll get into that today. But it's going to set us up for, for next week as we walk through the letters that Peter wrote uh, the early church. And so uh, as we jump into that, let me ask you, what is your most embarrassing moment? What's your most embarrassing moment? Um, I think everyone probably has a story that you can share and you're not too ashamed or you're not too mortified of it. You can, you can sort of laugh it off. Um, so some, of the, some of our most embarrassing moments, they're pretty benign. They're pretty tame. Um, if, you know, we're at a party and we, we'll share the story and we'll get a few laughs. Or how many of you have been at a corporate retreat and the facilitator's like, hey, let's go around and share our most embarrassing moment. And, and you have that story that you pivot to and, and, and you know, it gets a few laughs. Uh, I'm going to tell the story that I pivot to when asked that in a group setting and I'll just say it's not even like my top five embarrassing moments. Um, my wife was the first to laugh at that. <laughs> it's not even in my top five because I have so many and some of them are in the vault and you'll never know them. Um, but, but this is probably only like six or seven on the list. But I was a new youth pastor and it had, I'd been on the job just a few days in, in Alabama. It's my first position out of college and uh, I was in that phase where you're getting to know everyone, you're putting names with faces. And at church one evening, I had met a, a young lady named Tammy. Tammy was involved in our youth group. She was one of our sponsors. And she was a lot of fun to be around. I, I just knew from meeting Tammy that, that first time that she was someone that you could just cut up with and, and just really, you know, in, enjoy. Just, she loved life and loved to have fun. And she also worked at our preschool. And so uh, two or three days later, after I met Tammy, uh, my lead pastor said, hey, let's go to lunch. And we grabbed another staff member and the three of us were walking out into the parking lot to go to lunch. And I saw someone getting into Tammy's car. I said, oh, that's Tammy. I'm going to have fun with her. And as she's getting in her car, I go up behind her car and I jump on the bumper and I start bouncing up and down. Just now that in itself is not even that funny. Like, why would you do that? Um, it's kind of a dumb thing to do. But I thought, oh, I'm just going to mess with Tammy a little bit. So I'm jumping up and down on the back of her car. 
And my lead pastor is looking at me like, what in the world are you doing? Who is this person I've hired and why are they bouncing on the back of this car? And this lady opens the door. She gets out of her car. She looks at me and she says, what are you doing? It was not Tammy. It was, I had no clue who it was. It was, it was a parent from the preschool who was picking up their preschooler. And I said, oh, I thought you were someone else, but hi, I'm the new youth pastor. I'm doing exactly what you would expect a new youth pastor to do because they're just wired a little different and they're crazy. And sometimes they just bounce up and down on the back of your car. I was, I was so embarrassed. But I can laugh that off, right? We can very easily laugh that off. I know you had that story. Uh, but what are, what are those parts of your story that are not so easily dismissed? And what about the parts of the story that you can't laugh it off, you can't shrug it off, and as much as you try, you can't throw it off. It has stuck with you. You've messed up. You, your, your, your shame or your failure is now exposed, and you are reaping what you've sown. You've made poor choices. You know, in recent days, we've been introduced to something in our cultural lexicon. It's called canceled. This is a, a new term, a new-ish term to, you know, that, 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 is, that is being thrown around and something that's happening. And the advent of social media has made this a thing. But this is where like a celebrity uh, will, will do something wrong and, or do something uh, that, from their past and that will be exposed. And all of a sudden this influencer or this celebrity or this rich person or this influential person all of a sudden, they lose their endorsements, and they lose their platform, and they get canceled. And I want to say this about this phenomenon. I'm going to say three observations about what I've seen as cancel culture has become a thing in our world. Number one, let's just say this. Some people have done terrible things, and they've justifiably lost their platform, their endorsements, etc. They've done bad stuff. And they deserve to pay a price. Of that group of people that have done bad stuff and have been lost their platform, it seems to me that like half of those people then play the victim card. Like they've done bad stuff and they're being held accountable for it, but they play the victim card of, I'm a victim of cancel culture and what I did really wasn't that bad and everybody's after me and I'm the victim. Forget about the people that I have victimized. So that's on one, those are two things, two things observed about what's happening in our world. And that's on one end of the spectrum. But on the other end of the spectrum, this is the third thing I would say about cancel culture, is that some people appear to have paid a disproportionately heavy price for what they've done or they've said. And, and, and I, I see things play out in our world and, and I, I see the, the price that they're paying and what's happening to them. And, and I think to myself, man, I... I don't know if they deserved quite all of that. So that's what we, I have observed, and maybe you've observed some other things as cancel culture becomes a thing. But before it was called cancel culture, it was called the court of public opinion. And the court of public opinion has never been a fair place of justice. It's always been all over the map. But the court of public opinion was made exponentially worse when everyone with a social media account was sworn in as a juror. You're now a juror in the court of public opinion. And so we have 
cancel culture. Here we are. It's a thing. And you don't have to have a million followers. You don't have to have a million followers or be an influencer to fall victim to being canceled. Because you know at the end of the day, you know what it means to be canceled. Canceled is when your story becomes defined by your worst mistake. The story of your life, the totality of your life, your job, your work, your family, when that becomes defined by your worst mistake and everything is colored by that mistake, that is what it means to, to be canceled. And it's happened to and, 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 and it's happened to celebrities, but it also happens to us. And in that moment, when your worst mistake becomes exposed and it's embarrassing and it's mortifying and you can't laugh it off and you can't shrug it off and you can't throw it off, in that moment, have you ever just thrown your hands up and said, okay, I'm all done. I, 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 I'm just all done. I, I can't recover from this. I, I, I'm, this is bad. I'm all done. This is terrible. The journey of the gospel is a journey from being all done to all in. And Peter shows us what that looks like. He was all in for Jesus. You read this early on in the story. Jesus calls Peter to follow him and Peter leaves his nets and he follows Jesus. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that he was handed over to be crucified, Jesus is with his disciples and Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm all in. I will follow you. I will go anywhere. I will die for you. I will lay down my life. I am all in. And Jesus says, I'd like to believe that, but I know that before the rooster crows this morning, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, no way, no way. I'm all in. Whatever it takes. And we know how the story goes. Jesus is handed over. Peter is confronted at the house of Caiaphas. This slave girl says, hey, I think you were with Jesus. I recognize you because your accent, it gives you away. You're a Galilean. Weren't you with Jesus? And three times Peter says, no, no, I, I wasn't with him. I don't know the man. And it was the quintessential story of, of Peter's failure. But the story of Jesus doesn't end with the cross. The story of Jesus, it climaxes with the resurrection. And the gospel writers are very careful when these angels appear to women. These angels say to the women, go tell the disciples the tomb is empty. Jesus has been risen just like he said. Tell the disciples. And then Mark includes this detail. And Peter, make sure you tell Peter. And the women who were the first preachers of the gospel, they leave the tomb and they go and they tell the disciples and Peter that the tomb is empty. And the text tells us that Peter and another disciple ran. They immediately took off. They wanted to check this thing out. That's how much Peter wanted to see if this was in fact true because it would transform his life if it were true. Peter ran. He wanted to know if, if this was true. And he sees the open tomb. He sees that is empty. And he recognizes that, that something has changed, that there's still hope for him. But he hasn't quite like, made sense of what it means for Christ to be raised. And we know that because in John 21, Peter and the other disciples, they decide to go fishing. Before they followed Jesus, before Jesus went to the cross, before the resurrection, they were fishermen. And then Jesus called them to be fishers of 
men. And they did that with Jesus. And then now after Peter's failure and then after the resurrection, they're not quite sure what to do. Peter says, hey, let's go fishing. And John tells us in John 21 that they were just as bad fishing after the resurrection as they were before. Because you might remember the story where they fished all night. They caught nothing. And Jesus, before he called them, he came by the shore and he said, Hey guys, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And they did so and they caught this miraculous uh, catch of fish. And there they are, after the resurrection, fishing. They catch nothing. And this stranger on the shore calls out to them. Hey guys, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. They really didn't have have a whole lot of options there. They had fished all night, caught nothing. I'm sort of thinking if you were there all night, wouldn't you already try the other side of the boat? Or are you that stubborn? You're just going to stay on that side of the boat all night. I think we can relate to that actually. But like no one said, hmm, this sounds eerily familiar. Haven't we been here before? But it was this moment of deja vu where they said, okay, well, let's try the other side. They cast their nets on the other side of the boat and the miracle happens again. John tells us that like 153 fish, I guess he was there, he counted them. 153 fish are caught and that's when it clicks. That's when the deja vu moment finally snaps into place and Peter's like, oh my goodness, that's Jesus. That's the resurrected Christ. And so he leaves his friends in the boat. He leaves the miraculous catch of fish. He jumps into the water. He swims to shore, leaves his friends to bring in 153 fish by themselves. They get the fish up to the shore and right there they have a fish fry. And it is this amazing moment where Peter is fully restored into fellowship with Jesus. The fish fry, having a meal with Jesus on the beach. It is this picture of fellowship. It is this picture of relationship. Would you want to have a meal with the person that denied you when you needed him the most? You probably wouldn't, but Jesus did. Jesus said, Peter, you're welcomed here at the fish fry. You're welcome to share the, the, the fish that I've caught for you today. Let's fellowship here around this meal. And in that moment, Peter was restored to fellowship with, with Jesus. And, and what we need to realize is that we live in this world of cancel culture where our story is defined by our worst mistake, but that's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is redeemed culture. What is it when God redeems us? This is all throughout the Bible. It's when God weaves your worst mistake into the story of his amazing grace. When God takes the thing you're ashamed of, when God takes the thing that you can't laugh off, throw off, or shrug off, and he weaves that into his story of amazing grace and says this, when it's colored by grace, when it's covered by grace, when it's infused by grace, it is a thread in this tapestry of this amazing story that I'm telling of how I'm saving and redeeming the world. God takes all of that up into his story through the cross and the resurrection. And so Peter thought he was all done. I'm finished. But friends, even when we feel like we're all done, Jesus still calls us to be all in with him. There's Peter restored to fellowship. But but what's interesting is, is John doesn't leave it there in John 21. He goes on to tell this this, this next episode, 
Here's Peter restored to fellowship with Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, hey, let's talk for a little bit. Let's make sure you understand everything that's going on here. And so I want to pick it up with verse 15. After they finished the fish, Peter was restored to fellowship. This encounter happens, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, and he says to us, and this is another deja vu moment, follow me. Follow me. You see the pattern of three here in the Gospel of John? The slave girl at Caiaphas' house, she asked Peter three times, or those gathered around the fire, they asked Peter three times, are you a disciple? No. Are you a disciple? No. I'm telling you, your accent gives you away. Aren't you a disciple? No, no, no. He denied Jesus three times. But here at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus asks him three times. And for every one of Peter's failures, Jesus gives him a chance to affirm his love for him. And isn't that a picture of God's grace? For every failure in our life, God redeems it. For every embarrassing moment, for every mortifying moment, for every story and chapter of shame and guilt in our life, Jesus redeems it by his cross and his resurrection. And he makes all of it a part of his story of grace that he's telling the world. But I want to make sure you don't miss out on something. Not only is Peter forgiven and redeemed in this moment, but his forgiveness is linked to his calling. That what it means for Peter to be forgiven and restored is to be commissioned for the mission that God had for his life. We need to recognize, friends, that that this is true of us as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said that we take God's grace and we cheapen it when we don't live transformed lives. When we, when we accept the forgiveness of God and make no change in our behavior, make no change in our action, do nothing to partner with God in the advancement of his mission in the world, we cheapen the grace of God. He talks about cheap grace and costly grace. And he says, make no mistake about it. The grace of God is free to you, but it is not cheap. It cost God everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him. Like that statement alone tells you how costly this grace of God is that we have received. And so we have to receive it as the precious gift that it is. 
And so Peter isn't just invited to the fish fry. Peter isn't just invited back into fellowship with God. Peter is then invited to live out his true calling and live out his mission that God has given to him. And that's true of us, friends, that we are saved from sin, thank God. But we are also saved for mission. These things are together. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. We're saved from sin, but we are saved for mission. We're set apart for a purpose. And I love what one of my friends said, changed people change people. You get that? If you've been changed by God's grace, then you're an agent that God wants to use to change others. Changed people change people. Our friend Catherine is translating that into Spanish today. I wonder how that's going to go. I know it'll go really well because she's really good at it. But changed people change people. We're saved from sin, but we're also saved for mission. And that's the story of Peter. That's the story of Peter. That's the story of John 21, where Jesus is saying, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. You've been changed. You've been forgiven. But you're now commissioned as an instrument to feed sheep and to take care of lambs and to change others. This snapped into focus for me when I was in Israel back in March. And as you kind of walk in the steps of Jesus and you go to the different sites where Jesus did lots of different things, uh, along the way, I mean, Jesus is the focal point of the tour and the story and all the things that you're visiting. But the supporting cast also have sort of their places as well. And who is the lead supporting actor in the story of Jesus more so than Peter? And so along the way, you, you go to some pretty special places that, that mentions Peter as well. And there's a chapel in Jerusalem. It's called St. Peter de Galicantu, which is Latin for of the rooster. How would you like to be a part of that church? The church of the rooster. And it's built on the traditional site of Caiaphas's house. Like this is the place where the high priest lived. And this is the first place that Jesus was taken and charges were brought up against Jesus. And there the Sanhedrin decided to take Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. But it was also there that Peter warmed himself around a fire. And around that fire, people said, I think you're a disciple. I think you're one of the followers of Jesus. And it was there in that place where Peter denied that he knew Jesus. And the, the rooster, the Galicantu, the rooster crowed. And Peter recognized that what Jesus had said had come true. And I want to show you the entrance to the chapel. As you walk into the chapel, the artist has done something pretty special with the doors. These are bronze doors and, and there's a relief on the doors. And you see Jesus there uh, on your left. He's in blue. And he's pointing at someone in red and, and that's Peter. And as you approach the doors, it's pretty easy to, to see what's happening. But the artist has done something pretty amazing. The, the bronze finger of Jesus, it comes out of the door. And as you look at it, initially, it's pretty plain to see that Jesus is pointing at Peter. 
But if you'll stay there long enough and stare at the relief long enough, you'll begin to see what the artist has done. The bronze eyes of Jesus are not just looking at Peter, but they've been fashioned in such a way that they're looking at you. And the bronze finger of Jesus that comes out of the door, it's not just pointing at Peter. You stare at it long enough, you see that it's pointing to you. And the implication is that Peter's story is our story. That all who walk through the doors of this chapel bind themselves to this story of failure. Connect, they connect themselves to this story of failure. We can't walk through the chapel and not be connected to what Peter has done. We Understand this truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Peter's sin is no worse than our own, and our sin is no worse than his. We've all failed. We all have things that we're ashamed of. And the bronze finger of Jesus points at all of us. We've all let God down. And this is, we, this is a, a transformative moment where we, we, our story becomes bound to, to Peter's. Thankfully, there's more to the story, but this is part of experiencing it. In fact, let me tell you the other part of the story. Because there's another site you go to when you go to Capernaum, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. It's there in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus did so much ministry, did so much work there in Capernaum. This is where Peter lived. This is where he had his fishing business. This is where Jesus called him to, to follow him. And it's not too far from Capernaum. When Jesus looked at the disciples and he looked specifically at Peter and he said, you are the rock. I'm going to call you Petros. I'm going to call you rock because on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so there at Capernaum, at the home of Peter, you have this bronze statue. Oh, and here's, here's Peter that maybe we're, we're most familiar with. He's standing on the rock. He's holding keys in his hand. These are the keys to the kingdom that, that Jesus has given to him. You can't see the top of the staff he's holding, but it's a shepherd's crook. Because what did he say there in John 21? Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. And so here's Peter, the rock, standing upon the rock, holding the keys of the kingdom, shepherding the people of God, emerging as a great leader in the early church. And it all began here at Capernaum when Jesus invited him to follow him. But I, I, I take you to Galicantu because I want to remind you that Peter doesn't become this leader without Galicantu. Without that episode of failure, without that episode of brokenness, Without that moment in which he went out and he wept bitterly because he knew how utterly sinful he was and how utterly just unable to, to do what God had called him. He, he, he hit rock bottom in that moment and he recognized that he needed to depend and trust completely and totally upon Jesus. And what the Lord revealed to me is I stared at this statue for a little bit is that you can't have one without the other. That, that this statue that captures Peter's commissioning and his calling, it was forged in the shame and the guilt of Galicantu. 
But when the shame and the guilt of Galicantu is merged with the grace of God and the transformative power of God, he makes us into someone we could never be on our own strength. He makes us into someone that we could never be without him. And so today we want to be all in, right? We want to be all in with Jesus. We want to say with Peter, I will follow you. I will do whatever, Jesus. I'm all in. But if the lesson of Galicantu is to be learned today, it's this, that one cannot be all in with Jesus until they are all done with their self. Until they are all done with their ambition. Until they are all done with trying to make it happen on their own strength. Until they are all done with with living out this life and this calling on their own strength. They have to be done with self. Self has to be crucified so that a resurrected life can emerge in our lives. And that's what the writer, that's what John is saying here. Verses 18, where Jesus says, I'm telling you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands. Someone else is going to lead you. Someone else is going to dress you. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Friends, that's the journey of discipleship. As we make this decision to follow Jesus, it must be preceded by a death where the old person dies, the old ambitions die. This focus on self-preservation and what I want, what I think is best, all of that dies. And Peter now, having lived through this season of failure, having been restored by the resurrected Christ, having died to all that, he's now ready to hear what Jesus says next. Follow me. Now he's ready to follow Jesus because he's died to himself. This happened for my friend Michael. Michael was a state championship wrestler in Georgia. And God was doing something in his life. God had a calling on his life. God wanted him to surrender to this this call that he had on his life. And he was fighting that. And as a wrestler, he was a pretty good fighter. He was able to resist it pretty well. But Michael tells me that he came to a point in his life in which the call that God had on his life was connected to his growth in Christ. Like like to be a follower of Jesus, he was going to have to surrender to this call and he was going to have to do this thing that God was calling him to. And and for him to say no to it would be for him to walk and to live in in disobedience. But he was fighting it because he didn't want to do that. And he continued to struggle and continue to go back and forth with God. And he tells me that, that one evening at a camp, God finally got a hold of him. He stepped out from the aisle. He knelt at an altar of prayer. And he began to surrender to this call on his life, which, which just suddenly felt this, this freedom, suddenly felt like this weight and this burden lifted off of him. He stopped struggling with it. And he tells me that at the end of his prayer, he didn't know how else to express it. But as people were gathered around him, as they were praying with him, he finally lifted up his hands and he said to the top of his his lungs, he said, he pinned me. 
He pinned me. The state championship wrestler had been pinned. He'd surrendered his life to God. And, and I just wonder if there's someone today that would say, there, there's, you're struggling with something. You're wrestling with something. There's a part of you that you're holding on to something. You can't imagine your life without controlling every detail of this thing or this situation. And maybe God today is telling you to die to yourself. Maybe God wants to pin you. Maybe God wants you to surrender to that. With every head bowed, with every eye closed. Could, could we just allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives today? Is there someone that just needs to be pinned? Your ambition needs to be pinned. Your self-interest needs to die. Your career needs to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Your control over your family just needs to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Are you struggling with something? I want you to know that when we surrender that to God and we give that to God, He does more through our lives than we could ever do on our own. And so would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, here we are in your presence. You're calling us to cast our nets on the other side of the boat. <laughs> You're calling us to think about life in a different way. Lord, I, I pray for that person gathered here today that they are struggling with a call. Lord, I pray that they would be surrendered to that. There's something going on in their family. There's something going on in their career. There's, there's something going on and they can't see how they would make sense of it without total control. But Lord, would you remind them that you are in control? Would you remind them that you, you have great plans and you have great purposes for their life? And Lord, to see those realize we have to be all done with ourself. Help us to be all done with control. And Lord, help us to be all in for what you want for our lives. Would you do that through the grace and the presence of your Holy Spirit? We thank you for what you're doing in this place. We give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,